Dr. Soon Pake's work with the NSABP follows in the tradition of another pathfinding breast pathologist, Dr. Edwin Fisher, Bernie's brother. I met with Dr. Pake to review his current research efforts, and he began by commenting on perhaps the most critical part of current pathologic evaluation of breast cancer tissue, assay for ER, PR, and HER2. The most important take-home lesson is that none of these tests are perfect. And I think the primary role of surgeons at this point could be to contribute tissues for research because without the tissue, with clinical follow-up, we can never be able to optimize this test. Having said that, I think it is almost frightening to see the data from, for example, Utah, where depending on what day the tissue was processed or operation was done, the ER results changes. So the tumors that were operated on Friday had much lower rate of ER positivity compared to all the rest because they were fixed longer. So they were informally longer because during the weekend. So they were not immediately processed into the tissue block. And that's relevant to IHC testing? Yes, right. So, unfortunately, ER is done by IHC. It's less implications for fish for her, too. So, how does a surgeon, you know, in a community hospital assure that his patient is going to have appropriate ER and HER2 testing? I think the surgeons have almost a duty to communicate with pathology department to demand quality control and quality assurance data that they keep. So they have to understand what kind of testing is done at that particular lab. Is it a reliable test? And I think it has to meet certain standards. For example, for the HER2, I think it has to meet the ASCO CAP testing guideline, and they go through the quality control checks. So, for example, can you check, is it a certification thing where you can say, are you certified, or how does that Uh, work? For HER2, I think from this year, CAP is going to enforce the quality control. So it's a new thing. Yeah, so they will be certified, and if they cannot meet that certification, they are not supposed to perform that test. That's just her, too. What about ER? ER, we don't have any standard in the community or even research. So there will be a similar committee between ASCO and CAP this year organized to discuss the ER problem. I've heard that the way IHC is done is somewhat variable, that, you know, there's, for example, the Hercep test, but that maybe people don't use it all the same way? Yes, that is correct. Can you explain that? Because that sounds kind of scary. Right. So, because at each institution, they have different equipment to perform immunohistochemistry or some places done manually. And pathologists, usually immunohistochemistry procedures always required tweaking of, you know, detailed procedure by the lab personnel or pathologists in that particular institution because, you know, fixation conditions or processing conditions can differ between pathology labs, and that does influence immunohistochemistry performance. So if you have a correct method of quality control or have a gold standard to compare your result, then I think it is better to tweak that say, even if there's an FDA-approved protocol, we find that you can tweak it better to have a better concordance with your gold standard. But in usual community labs, you don't have gold standard. So what they do is they tweak it so that it will maybe fit better with their own technician's schedule, for example. Instead of incubating two hours, maybe 
they will incubate three hours so that they can go to lunch and come back, for example. I think that could be one source of variability. And they have different machines that run these assays, and that's another variability. Is there a way to just sort of have you know, breast cancer specimens specifically sent to a central reference laboratory? I think that's what British does to about three national reference labs. So from a practical perspective, mm-hmm. I mean, you're looking at two targets where we have pretty mm-hmm. effective treatments, endocrine therapy and trastuzumab, right. you know, both bringing the opportunity to reduce cancer relapse rate right. you know, 50%, major, right. and yet we're not sure whether we're identifying the right patients to right. receive these agents. Any sort of ballpark guess about, for example, let's start with ER with the chances that a woman might be called ER negative when in fact she's ER positive and therefore doesn't get treated with hormone therapy that could benefit her so much? Overall discordance rate that we have in, let's say, B31 trial was about 20%. And I think that is consistent throughout all the studies that we do. So you have a 20% chance of having ER negative tumors called ER positive or vice versa. What about HER2? Again, now we have trastuzumab, you know, spectacular 50% reduction roughly in terms of relapse rate in addition to chemotherapy and hormonal right. therapy. What's the chance that a woman, I guess we're thinking 20, 25% of women with breast cancer have HER2 positive mm-hmm. tumors. What's the chance that a woman with HER2 positive tumor might be mislabeled as HER2 negative? It's actually very difficult to guess because all the data that we have is on central assay comparison with what was called positive by the local labs. So we know we have a pretty good handle on what is the false positive rate, but we don't really have a good handle on false negative rate. It is there. I think it is estimated to be 5 to 15%. So in some sense, the argument by Dr. Slayman and Dr. Press is correct that all these women should be really tested with fish. But I think the only caveat there is that it has to be done. Even fish has to be performed by very experienced labs. So again, quality control right. problem or issues right. about fish. Right. And where do you see things heading? I mean, there's sort of this you know, issue, okay, trying to get all these labs to follow protocols, et cetera. What about other technologies, and particularly the you know, RT-PCR technology that has been used for the Oncotype DX assay where you've been involved? We want to ask you about that. But what about that type of technique to look at ER and HER2? Well, I think and this, the data that we have generated from B14 trial clearly suggests that the molecular assay of looking at RNA level of the ER is superior to immunohistochemistry performed by a central lab in an exquisite manner. So to me, that's an indication that the RNA assay is superior to the assays that we are performing now. HER2, we don't have any data yet. Do you think that HER2 is going to play out the same way? I think so. Can you talk a little bit for you know somebody who hasn't been to med school in the last five years about sort of these techniques how do you do IHC? What's it looking at? How do you do a fish type of an assay? And what these RT-PCR assays are doing, and sort of what the difference is and sort of what we know about these different approaches. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's start from, I guess, RNA to protein. So the fish is a fluorescent inside hybridization, essentially looking at DNA copy number for specific gene or 
that region of the chromosome containing the gene. Essentially, what you do is you have a DNA probe that is fluorescently labeled. Then you have a tissue section with a target. You directly make that probe hybridize and generate a fluorescent signal on that specific spot. So you can actually, if there are two copies of a gene, then you can actually see two dots there. And if you have a gene amplification of HER2 gene, for example, with 10 copies, you expect to see 10 copies. In reality, actually, that's not the case because many times there is an aggregate signal when there is an amplification. So instead of 10 copies, you may end up calling it five copies because two dots are together. And there is the problem of heterogeneity in the signal because of a ploidy issue. So cells are going through different cell cycles, phase, and you can have different copy numbers coming from different parts of the tumor. And sometimes you have clearly amplified cells as a subpopulation among non-amplified cells. And how do you call that kind of case? We don't have a rule yet. Can you look at ER using FISH? No, because the DNA is not amplified in many cases. There are a subset of ER-positive tumors with amplification, and they have very high level of ER, RNA, or protein. But overall, so-called ER-positive tumors do not have any DNA abnormality that we can track with the FISH. So the FISH will work only if the target is result of the gene amplification of that gene. And then we have RNA assay. Essentially, you can look at it in a variety of ways, but from a clinical point of view, the only method that's been clinically validated is real-time reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction, or QRT-PCR. That's the basis for the oncotype assay, for example. But I know that there are many other companies coming out with the same kind of test. So you essentially have a primer set, the oligonucleotide primer set that binds to a specific RNA that you are interested, and then you amplify that with the DNA. Change that into DNA, and then you amplify that and generate the signal in real time so that you can measure, have a quantitative measure. Now, you cannot have an absolute quantitation in degraded samples like in paraffin block. What you do is you have a relative measurement in comparison to housekeeping genes or non-variable genes within the same tumor. And the good thing about the real-time PCR assay is that it's infinitely adaptable. So today you can measure HER2. Tomorrow you simply add another gene if you just know the target without much changes in the assay. Now, I know that Oncotype is now going to start reporting quantitative Mm -hmm. ER What do we know about how accurate that is and how correlated it is with response to endocrine therapy? We have, unfortunately, only two data sets that can support the use of that test for endocrine therapy. So in B14, B14 trial comparing placebo versus tamoxifen for ER-positive node-negative patient, we compared the estrogen receptor measurement by three different assays. So ligand-binding assay that was originally used for eligibility determination and immunohistochemistry using RRED score as well as the image analysis. And then we looked at the real-time PCR as part of oncotype assay. And we looked for whether there is a linear correlation between amount of the estrogen receptor that you have measured by these three assays and the degree of benefit from tamoxifen in the trial And the only one that actually had a statistically significant prediction was 
measurement by real-time PCR. Immunohistochemistry was totally nonlinear. Actually, we went back to see why, and what we found is that the assay saturates at very low level of estrogen receptor. They are all positive, obviously, because they were selected for more than 10 femtomer by ligand binding assay, but the assay got saturated between 10 to 50 femtomer already. So the quantitative relationship got lost in the way. Can you talk a little bit about the agotype? You've been so involved in the critical research that's been done. Can you kind of track back the history of what happened there? So I think the reason that we were interested in developing, looking at these molecular assays was because we were so frustrated in doing research using paraffin blocks that we have accumulated over the years in NSABP. So we are very much interested in finding, for example, whether we can have a reliable predictor of degree of benefit from endocrine therapy. But when we looked at the estrogen receptor measurement by classical assay, we couldn't demonstrate that. We knew that it's there biologically, it should be, but we just couldn't demonstrate so we hypothesized that looking at the molecule at the RNA level with multiple genes, we may be able to achieve that. And another frustration was the tumor grade. We knew that it was prognostic, but it was highly non-reproducible. For example, if we, three pathologists looked at together independently, the agreement was less than 50%. So we knew that it is prognostic, but we needed a surrogate of tumor grade, which will perform reproducibly. So, and we knew that we cannot achieve that by looking at one gene. We had to look at multiple genes. But the technology was not available until the scientists at the Genomic has decided to crack that problem and came up with methodologies of performing real-time PCR on highly degraded or fragmented RNA that you can extract it from paraffin block. In terms of tumor grade, is that essentially correlated or is it essentially proliferation? I think it has a component that correlates very well with proliferation, that is mitotic activity index, but it has other components. But in general, there is a very good correlation. So what happened in terms of the sequence of events in terms of trying to actually put this into a platform that Mm -hmm. clinicians could utilize? I was lucky because... We had a collaboration with Steve Shack at Genentech for a B31 trastuzumab trial. And then during that trial, we had experienced the problem of reproducibility of the HER2 testing, as reported in JNCI some time ago. That actually had stimulated Steve Shack to think about the potential niche in the market for accurate testing for the target. So he had a collaboration with the former CEO of the Inside Pharmaceuticals, who already was developing a technology for paraffin block RNA profiling, and decided to set up a company that will specifically address that problem. And luckily, we just found that we had a common interest. We had a clinical need, and they had a technological platform that they wanted to test. So all we needed to do was to sit down together and decide what clinical question is the most important one that we want to use as a kind of a demonstration project and that turned out to be B14 study. Yeah, and I thought it was so brilliant that, you know, what you came up with is a very common situation, no mm-hmm. negative. Most patients, fortunately now, are no negative, mm-hmm. ER positive, 
And then the question of, in those patients, what's the benefit of chemotherapy? Mm-hmm. And that was, to me, an awesome idea to try to focus on that. I guess that was your initial focus. Right, right. But there were a lot of limitations in the study design, for example, because obviously we desired a test that is predictive of chemotherapy response, but we had to work with a limited amount of the clinical cohort that we had, that is only B20 and B14, and we actually had to make a gamble of starting with B20 tamoxifenom, fully realizing that in the way it will backfire on us because you cannot use the cohort that was used for hypothesis generation for testing. So although the reason that we used B20 first and used B14 later for validation was because there were a lot more samples in B14. So we decided to use B20 tamoxifenum to develop the set and then validate it in B14. But that was only for prognosis. And we had to go back to B20 chemotherapy to test the chemotherapy question. But obviously, that is the weakness of the study. So can you kind of explain what they were? So initial study that we did was in NSAP trial B20, where we tested uh, addition of chemotherapy provided any value to ER-positive node-negative patient being treated with tamoxifen. And we initially used the tamoxifen arm from B20 to look at 250 genes and look for the genes that are associated with prognosis. And so this is a fairly context-specific prognostic genes that are prognostic only in that setting. And then we tested it in an independent cohort of similar patients from a trial B14 where ER-positive node-negative patients were randomized to placebo tamoxifen. So we were able to use B14 to validate the prognostic index, which now became oncotype DXOSA. And then the next question was, when we looked at the gene list that comprised the oncotype assay, we realized that it's heavily populated by estrogen receptor-related genes and proliferation-related genes. So we hypothesized that this test must be predictive of chemotherapy response also. So now, you know, I think the archetype has really gotten integrated into clinical care in terms of management of the patient with a no-negative tumor. But now, just in the last few months, we're starting to see data come out with patients with node-positive tumors. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what's been seen there? I think the study from SWOG presented by Dr. Kathy Alba in the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium kind of reinforced the idea that oncotype assay is a predictor of chemotherapy. So I think it has a significant role in supporting the data we had from B20 study that I described earlier because that was just one study and we had a question of comparing to the tamoxifen arm which was used for the gene finding. So in some sense, it was a highly biased population. So it is reassuring now that we find a very similar finding in node-positive disease where a high score, high recurrence score from oncotype assay associates with a higher degree of benefit from chemotherapy. But actual clinical utility of oncotype assay in node-positive patients, I think, is still questionable at early stage, and we need a lot more study because even in so-called low-risk patients by oncotype assay, their baseline risk is still very high, and uh, clinicians probably will have a hard time not giving chemotherapy to this patient, although 
biologically probably expected benefit from chemotherapy is very small. Did you see this poster for the San Antonio meeting looking at basically archetype and special tumor types? Uh, yes. Can you talk a little bit about what they looked at and what your thoughts are about it? Dr. Boehner asked the question whether these special histological types, namely lobular invasive type, tubular type, mucinous type, or medullary type, will have biological differences. They can be described by oncotype assay. And they did find that the so-called favorable histological types, the pure tubular or papillary or mucinous types, tend to have a higher proportion of low recurrence score compared to the usual NOS type of tumors. Although the thing that struck me was not all of them had low recurrence scores. That's in fact, correct. there were, I mean, because the textbooks kind of say these are benign tumors, right. you don't need to worry about them, and maybe that's the case. I don't know, but I mean, right. you know, for example, I think in the mucinous type, they had 7 or 8% that were a mm-hmm. high recurrence score. Right. What's going on there? Do you think that, of course, we don't really know how that would correlate with relapse rate. They didn't report that. Right. What do you think it means? Yeah, the weakness of this study is that it doesn't have any clinical correlate outcome results. So it's interesting scientifically, but I don't think it really affects clinical practice because you know, all the data suggests that the favorable histological types do have excellent prognosis. Now, are they 100% you know, event-free on long-term follow-up? They do have some events. Can it be explained by oncotype assay? We don't know yet. But I guess, you know, it also raises the question of, is what we learned in the textbook really true today? And I actually spoke with the first author of this poster, and one of the things that he was mentioning to me, and that's really what I wanted to ask you, is he felt that these diagnoses under the microscope are not necessarily that straightforward, and that maybe people are being called tubular mucinous or whatever that are actually, you know, adenocarcinoma with those features and in fact don't have that, you know, that there's a potential for misreading, which I hadn't heard before. Is that, what do you think? About 15, 20 years ago, there was a publication by Dr. Kennedy from SWOG, a Southwestern Oncology group, who did a central review of their materials, actually published a paper that shows that when you look at tumor grade, three-level grade, you know, good, moderate, poor. The agreement was extremely poor. It improved a little bit if you have a two-level grading system, good or bad. And when they looked at the tumor histological types, the concordance rate was extremely bad. So obviously we do have a known situation where the diagnosis of these special types is sometimes not reliable. But the real classical types, classical tubular or classical mucinous or papillary types, it's hard to misdiagnose those. So, but there are cases where there is a mixture of other types, and I guess depending on the proportion of that NOS component within the tumor, that might influence the diagnosis a little bit. So we had a patient, we actually presented an education meeting that we did in San Antonio, a real woman who had a 1.8 centimeter node negative, quote, mucinous cancer. I saw the PATH report. That's what Mm -hmm. it said. And the patient's tumor was sent for oncotype Mm -hmm. and turned out to be intermediate. Mm -hmm. I guess my question, I mean, it could have been high, too, because, again, 7% was high. So, 
I guess my question would be, in a patient like that who has intermediate or high recurrence score, do we just assume that the textbooks are right and she's going to be fine? We don't have any data on these special types in B14 because most of the cases were NOS or mixed tubular NOS. So essentially, we don't have any data to make any recommendation, unfortunately, at this point. I think what's clear from the studies that we have conducted so far, B14 and B20, when you include classical prognostic factors such as tumor grade and lymph node status into the multivariate model containing oncotype assay, they are completely independent with each other. So the take-home message essentially is that we have to take both into account. So even if you have high recurrence score, oncotype assay score, the expected failure rate probably is less if you have favorable histological type. Where that absolute value lies, we have no idea. That's the problem at this point. But I fully expect that the behavior of tumors are not 100% dependent on recurrence score. So you want to hear what happened with this patient? She has an intermediate, I think it was 23. Mm -hmm. She was, for better or worse, I guess she was allowed into the Taylor X study. Okay. Got randomized to chemotherapy and got chemotherapy. Okay. How often do we see these special tumor types? Not very often. The pure types are very rare. Hmm. Outside of a clinical trial setting, do you think it would be rational or appropriate to give a patient who has a colloid cancer and a high recurrence score chemotherapy? I don't know. (laughs) Honestly, I don't know. Because when you combine those information, for example, if you put that into adjuvant nine together head-to-head with the oncotype assay. If oncotype result was intermediate or high, but if adjuvant nine prediction was fairly good, then patients still had fairly good prognosis, still over 10% recurrence rate, but maybe on the intermediate boundary instead of really high. So you can kind of downgrade oncotype assay score in some sense in your brain if the patient had, you know, good histological features. We know that ER-positive tumors do not benefit that much from chemotherapy. So the ideal management will involve biopsying the tumor and test for the oncotype, say, and test for the HER2, and triage the patient based on those two markers or three markers. And in that setting... You know, if you rely your diagnosis on core biopsy, unless your pathology department is highly reliable, you tend to have wrong assay data for estrogen receptor, for example, or HER2, unless they are very experienced, because their fixation conditions for the core biopsy is very different from whole tumor, and you end up looking at a very small amount of the material.